Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode six of this wonderful season that we're recording. One thing that I wanted to say to you is how good is it for you to do the two-part recordings every episode? How are you finding the format? I'm really enjoying it, actually. Mm. It's giving me an opportunity to have conversations and sort of take them in quite specific directions that maybe I don't otherwise, I'm not otherwise able to, to do. do so much mm. uh, with the, the previous like interview mm-hmm. format. And I love that I'm able to talk to, it's going to sound horrible, like normal people whose experience in life may not have included writing a book about something mm, or mm. blogging or podcasting or yeah. even... Creating something. Yeah, but Just I mean, like- creating something related to slow living, yeah. yeah. I mean, even in the conversations that I have had with people about specific... Uh, not in this season, mm. about specific things. I just feel like we're able to dig into it in maybe a uh, a more relevant kind of way. Yeah. There's certainly something that gets lost is the wrong word, mm. um, that kind of gets smoothed out in interviews when you're talking to someone who has had a long time to think, uh, to structure their thoughts on something, if that makes sense. It do. And it, 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 it it kind of polishes it, which is necessary. If you're doing lots of podcast interviews or you've written a book or whatever, you know, you, you do need to have that sort of, sort of way of speaking about your thing. But I do think that it sometimes accidentally removes some of the bumps and, and quirks and difficulties that people listening experience, you I know, the, this, the, the, yeah. the, the realistic challenges. Exactly. This season is really real. I will say that. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm very much enjoying being able to revisit conversations and revisit with old guests as mm. well, and kind of get their take on things. Because my, I've got to be honest, the thing I was m- most concerned about with putting this season together was I didn't want to feel like I needed to have all the answers. No, for no, people, no, no. You of know? course, yeah. And that was never the idea mm. behind it, and no one has expected it either. Mm. But. That was sort of a story I was telling myself. So it's really nice to just be able to talk it out with yeah, people, both you know, the, first, the, the listeners in the first half and then guests in the second half. I wanted to check in with you because we've certainly received some great feedback about the format for this season. So there really has been, actually. Who knows what will happen for the next season, but we've got some ideas. We have some very, very solid ideas. I do think that I would like to revisit this format again next year sometime. Totally. You know, it's been so it, – it is a lot more work, yep. I will say that, uh, but I'm happy to do it because I think that it's sort of getting getting to slow living and all the adjacent parts of life that, you know, are slow living adjacent, a lot of sustainability I've discovered, you know, getting to it from different angles. Yeah. And I think it's a, a – I'm learning a lot. thought so. it was important to check in with you. Thank you. That was very thoughtful of you. Before we get into today's guest and – this is a, no, it's not a, it's a pretty unique sort of situation, but I guess a lot of us, including us, are sort of in this boat, if you like. Yeah, I actually think yeah. that while the specifics may not be super common, I think that the situation would yeah. be very common. So yeah. today I chat with Amy, who comes to us from rural mm. northern Maine. Northern Maine. Which is so beautiful. God's, co- love, God's country. I love Maine. <laughs> And um, Amy has been making huge strides in all different areas of slow living. So decluttering, slow fashion, shifting in towards making low waste efforts, but living in a rural area where, you know, the closest centre is quite some distance away. Mm. She's finding that a lot of the low waste options that are given to to us by, you know, low waste writers and, and people who are kind of inspiring change aren't actually available. Mm to her in her community. So we talk a bit about... So short of developing the, all these from scratch. Exactly. And Amy runs her own business. Mm. She's a mother. Of she's course. a partner. Yeah. You know, she has a full life. And I know that that is sometimes the solution that's delivered, but it's also really unrealistic to mm-hmm. expect, you know, Amy to open up a bulk food store. And mm-hmm. also in such a small community, would that be viable? You know, yeah. That's an interesting... It, it is. So, we, I mean, we spend time talking about this, the specific challenges she's up against but we also look at why it's really important to be understanding of the system that you find yourself in 
as Sarah Wilson mentioned a couple of weeks ago, very easy for us as individuals to slip into despair because we feel and are made to feel like the solutions must be on us as individuals, whereas the system actually needs to change, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we can't take ownership of all of the, the flaws of the system. Otherwise, mm. we end up despairing and not, not acting and not changing. And to a certain extent, the system's been set up in a way that it is very, very hard to change and unpick and yeah. do something alternative. It is, yeah. you know, and I think that, yes, activating and agitating for change is an important part of making these changes individually, I think, but it's also important to acknowledge that there are always going to be parts that you just have to do your best and move on, you know, parts of life and areas of life that given your situation, you do your best and move on. Um, and I just think that that's a, a really important takeaway from my chat with Amy Uh, But we also discuss, I mentioned that Amy was a business owner. She was very curious about how to maybe bring a little more slow or intentionality to um, running her business, which Mm. is a new business, from home with her four-year-old at home and also um, her partner who is self-employed. So there's a lot going going on. on there in Amy's home, which is also her workplace. We often say it's really hard to live slowly and intentionally when you've got a newborn, yes. young kids. Yeah. Young business would be, is hard as well. Yeah. And her hubby works from home as well. So yeah. that's, uh, I call that the holy trinity of barriers to living slow. Oh, what a bumper mm. sticker message. Mm. What a bumper sticker no. uh, term. Smooth, just rolls off the tongue. Doesn't it? Yeah. It is. It, it's difficult. So we also, Amy and I also talk about looking at life perhaps with through a different lens rather than, as I've discussed a lot throughout this season, not slow all the time or not someone else's version of slow, but we look at, at the seasonal approach maybe to to structuring life a little differently. Awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, let's all enjoy that chat. Let's do that. Amy, hello. How are you? Hi, Brooke. Good, thanks. And you? I'm delighted to talk to you because you're in one of my favourite parts of the world, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> and your email kind of had two parts to it that I really am excited to dig into because I think that so much of what you asked is going to be relevant to people, not only in similar circumstances to you, but really like a variety of circumstances. As I said, you live in Maine, but rural Maine, and you've been gradually making changes towards living a low waste life, but are finding it difficult to, to find solutions when you don't live near a big kind of regional center or city. So when you say rural, how rural are you talking? I mean, I do live in a city and there's about 9,000 people. Last year we moved here and prior to that I lived in a town that had maybe like 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. What low waste changes have you made recently? What does that look like? Changing what I buy. Mm -hmm. We have... Um, they're called igloos. Basically, they're just the container that you put your recyclables into, and they're shaped like an igloo. You've never heard of that. No. <laughs> um, so that you can recycle some things like cans and corrugated cardboard and number two plastic. Okay. But you cannot recycle number one plastic. So I started looking at the things that I buy instead of getting things packaged in number one plastic I'm getting it in number two so that I can then go and recycle that what are the what's the infrastructure like for you in your city in terms of do you have a bulk food store or is there um you know a grocery store that has things in paper as an option how far do you have to travel to find like a bigger a bigger supermarket Whole Foods is five hours away. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I do. I did start going to the farmers market this year, um, and that's been great. I have gotten some reusable produce bags. I had that already, and one of the farmers was like, "Oh, geez, you're so prepared." I said, "Yeah, I had some planning involved, you know, because I'm making a conscious effort, but it takes that planning." You've already made a significant change because the reality is, I mean, this food systems. In um, developed countries, you know, like the States and Australia, they're not set up for our success in avoiding plastic. And that's not something that we can change as an individual over overnight just because we want to. So I think that taking a look at what you can change and making those shifts, making those swaps one at a time, is there something in particular that you are finding really frustrating at the moment in terms of 
trying to, to live low waste? Like perhaps the solution that you've heard is available elsewhere, but you don't have access to? One is compost okay. because I currently have a, a tumbler composter that's full and then I have three buckets and an extra pail so of food scraps that I don't know what to do with because my tumbler is full and I'm like I need to get another one or you know I just have it all that needs to get composted and it needs to be dealt with. Yes. So I'm not I'm by no means a composting expert, but I think that with limited amounts of um, food scraps, if you have garden beds, you can dig a hole. I think it needs to be 30 centimeters, so maybe a foot deep um, so that animals don't get into it. If you've got dogs or if you've got bears or raccoons or anything um, and you can fill that back in and it will break down naturally. Um, into the soil the earthworms will come in and do their job or what I have done is made a cheap and cheerful compost heap just for the time being um, out of chicken wire and a couple of sticks in the ground and you just kind of make a circular enclosure and put things in there um, so that it's going to work for you even while you're waiting for the tumbler to finish I guess the other alternative is to see if you have a neighbor who has a compost heap that would like some more scraps too um, so composting was one of the frustrations that you found yourself up against, just not being able to get rid of the bulk that you have. Do you think you hold yourself to really high standards with this sort of stuff? No. <laughs> I mean, like, I understand that it's a process. And to go from where I was to where I am, I'm happy with that. Like, That's awesome. And so I wanted to ask you that. If you Did you break, like, did you guys all have, reusable like uh, plates and bowls and utensils when you were traveling I mean do you go that far we we tried our best so essentially what I did for a couple of weeks before we left was if ever we were given you know a fork or a spoon with a takeaway meal or we ended up getting one at a coffee shop if the kids got an ice cream or whatever it was I'd keep them so I didn't go and buy a set of specially reusable cutlery for everybody but I had a collection in my backpack of whatever odds and ends I had collected we did end up getting four plastic plates and we kept them in the back of the car and that helped I mean just if you stopped at the side of the road had a sandwich rather than having to use plastic or kind of balancing it on your knee it was kind of nice to be able to do that everyone had a keep cup everyone had a reusable water bottle um, and then we had the plates and the the kind of random collection of cutlery obviously the produce bags and uh, reusable shopping bags we would then make the best decisions we could <laughs> they were not often not perfect but if uh you know we found ourselves on a day where we were like on a 10-hour road trip from one city to the next and we hadn't stopped in at a grocery store and we didn't have any enough food in the back we'd find ourselves at like burger king or something like that it's just making a choice um, to minimize, like to reduce the amount of plastic and waste that you create. So the kids would have a burger and fries, no drink. So no plastic straw, no plastic cup, you know, that sort of stuff made me feel like at least we we're making an effort towards doing less. And I feel like such a fraud even admitting that, but sometimes you just got to make the best of the situation. And to be perfectly honest, stressful enough, um, you know, doing what we were doing without adding that additional layer of like self-flagellation to it. It's kind of like that with fast fashion, and I've been like, oh, I need this right now, but if I buy it, that means I'm supporting the them to produce another one. Right. You know, right. it's like, yeah, and just taking a step back and, like, be intentional. Yeah. And I think acknowledging that your choices, you know, the choice to say no straw, thank you, or to not support that company, even if it was a thing that you, you really could have benefited from owning, like, Stepping back and acknowledging that gives us an opportunity to see that we do have power. I know we yes. feel powerless in the system that is just like, let's wrap everything in plastic and no one cares. But our shopping decisions, our consumption choices are our power. Um, so I, I'm really glad to hear that you're not being too hard on yourself because I often have conversations with people about shifting towards low waste and they're kind of overwhelmed with this eco-anxiety so I love that you've got that sense of hope and, and optimism and pride in the efforts that you're making, because that means that your problem solving abilities will actually be stronger. Yeah, one thing I did try to do to help with that was like focusing on 
keeping plastic out of the trash. The whole low waste thing, though, I was just like, I can't keep having all this trash coming out of my house. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like the garbage bags. Oh, I'm at a point in my life where I'm capable of starting to tackle this a little bit. Like, it took me a while. It took me a couple of years to get to the point from, you know, the time I first started listening to you and whatever other sources of information I was getting it took a while to click and I think that once you arrive at that that moment of recognition that moment of acknowledgement and kind of taking it on as a choice is really powerful because at that moment you can either choose to stick your head in the sand and say pretend I never said anything it's fine this is too hard or do what you're doing and make those changes focusing on your why which is essentially what you've just highlighted, which is you don't want your daughter to have to deal with these issues that she had no say in creating. And you, you mentioned that, so you've, you've shifted into self-employment, which is awesome. Um, but potentially also, this is sort of the second half of your email. How are you finding like the work from home juggle of being self-employed and having a young child at home? And is your partner also self-employed? Yes. Okay. You're in a transition season and that's not easy. I mean, so I think that my first thing that I would suggest to you is to really develop a sense of self-compassion and gentleness with yourself because it can be really easy to say, why can't I keep all of these balls in the air even over the course of a month? You know, I feel like I'm in a, a kind of a similar transition at the moment where my work hours have increased quite a lot. Kids are at school, but Ben and I are both working from home, kind of standing next to each other in the office and in a completely new environment, new community, everything. It's okay that it feels hard because it is hard. Um, but in terms of a practical thing, I spoke to Ben about it this morning actually before we got on the call and said, what would you suggest? And he said, hands down, the first and most important thing that he and I do to kind of keep the house and our, our work um, running at a relatively sort of even pace is um, a whip. So we have a Monday morning whip, so a work in progress meeting. Usually we will drop the kids off at school and go down to the coffee shop. We take our notepads and sit down and, um, and, and maybe spend 30 minutes going through our week. But before the kids were at school, we used to do it on Sunday night. So we would sit down with our phones, our calendars open, um, our individual notebooks or however it is that you run your week. And we would go through a, a, cat- a handful of categories of things that we knew would come up during the week. So that would be Ben's work my work, and that's where we'd note down any meetings or any time that we're out or spoken for. Um, Miscellaneous, like house stuff. So if the kids have got an activity on or a play date or a birthday party, that gets noted down. Uh, And then admin stuff, so house admin. Um, And then I would further break down my list into projects, writing that I'm doing, and podcast work. So we'd go through each of those categories and just list everything that needs to be done that week in those categories and then give them days that, that we're going to work on them. And it gives so much shape to our week that I don't know what I would do if we didn't have that, that um, interaction every week. So I'm not sure if that might be something that you and your husband might want to start experimenting with. I listen to Gretchen Rubin a lot too. And, you know, he's a questioner without question. And I'm an obliger without question. And so, like, for him... For me, I'm just like, yeah, these are the expectations and this is what I have to do. And for him, it's always just like he's already got his things that I that he needs to do. And he doesn't always feel like necessary to explain that to me. It's always been a matter of scheduling time for me to work and for him to work and figuring out like, okay, what we both work best in. And so it's like a battle for that time, you know? And so just figuring out like, okay, well, I'll work in the afternoons on two days a week. And so that's kind of helped at least getting it on paper for sure is been helpful. I guess having an idea and like maybe telling him that I need to know what you're doing so that I can figure out what I can give up to give you that time. With questioners, they, I think basically what you said would maybe be the best way forward, like giving him a reason why that is important, even if it doesn't feel important to him, how it would impact the way that the house ran, how work ran, all of it for the week, that would impact him. You know, he may be all good with his, with his 
his work and his situation, his plans. Uh, but you need to know what's going on. And that's not only about you, that's about everyone. So perhaps dressing it up as an experiment, you know, that's kind of a, a fun way to get someone to try something without feeling like they're being bullied into a change that they don't want to yeah. make to say, Hey, what if you blame it on me? Say, Brooke gave me homework for the next two months that on Sunday nights or Monday mornings, we're going to sit down for 15 minutes and we're going to work out our week and then just see, you know, and if at the end of two months, he's like, I hated it. That didn't help me at all. Fine. You know, that's an experiment. Um, so I am officially setting you homework and I'm go and feel free to blame it on me. <laughs> um, that structure helps. Um, it certainly helps Ben and I. But the other thing that Ben and I spoke about was the emotional labor, which is like the invisible labor at play in these kind of situations. You know, we, we still go back and forth on this stuff. We are still working out what is fair and equitable uh, because yeah. initially when he started working from home, it was not fair or equitable um, like I was doing the vast majority of the emotional labor, the long conversations with the kids at bedtime, um, talking through their days and, um, you know, just all, all of that sort of stuff, but also the emotional labor of keeping your head in, in the game of what's happening in the, in the house and like just keeping track of when the chores were last done and all that kind of stuff. It takes a toll on your mind. And I think that it's deeply unfair when you've got a, a, a fair, minded relationship where pretty much everything else is done with equality to have one person just bearing the the brunt of that um because it it affects everything it affects your ability then to parent in a present kind of way it affects your ability to turn up to work and tilt all the way into work it might be important you know to to at least begin that conversation you think that do you feel like the emotional labor falls to you no i mean he is so good with our daughter mm -hmm. so he is you know I can't say enough good things about him in terms of his ability to be a dad and we've decided to homeschool um she my daughter is three she's actually turning four next week and so she would normally be at an age that she's ready to go to preschool having our own business we have flexibility with you know our hours which is something that we've made a priority. Like we've definitely sacrificed certain areas to be able to do what we do and be in the situation that we are in. We're going to share the homeschooling duties. And for me, that feels really nice. And so it's just like having that structure in place is so critical for me. Yeah. And I guess that would then allow you to not have to think about it when you're not doing it. You know, if, if, if you've set the expectations, if the parameters are very clear, you both know what is in place, then you just don't have to think about it. You don't have to have the ongoing conversation. So that, I mean, that's exciting. That is really exciting um, that you've got, you've got that kind of coming up and it's something that you're going to do together too. Also, I think, again, having a, a fair and equitable share of, of that kind of that kind of work in the in the house can only be a good thing because it allows you both to empathize with the other person. And, you know, if you have a really stressful week or you've got a lot of meetings on, your husband has experienced what that's like already. He also will have busy weeks and he's got to kind of do the juggle. So when you both are aware of that, I think you're far more likely to turn up for each other in a, like in a really supportive way. His work is seasonal. So he's right. like, he's in his season of work, it's full on. And so that means the majority of the home and childcare is on me. But then when, when winter comes along, it's like, he's the one, the primary caregiver. Each stage has its own challenges. Right? 100%. Like, yeah, she's getting more independent. But then there's this whole thing where, yeah, you have to like make eye contact and the intelligence level is much higher than it used to be. So like, doesn't just take short, easy answers. They will ask you questions from three and up. They, they're asking you questions that require genuine thought and intention and mindfulness. You know, you can't, uh, like, it's not all, it's not all play. It's not all easy. Like you just believe everything that mommy says, because that's, that's when why, like, but why? But why? Yeah. But why? Uh, and because I said so doesn't really cut it when they hit that, <laughs> that age. 
they're very good at, at demanding that you're fully engaged um, at that age. And I think that's that's something to really learn from because what it teaches us, and this was sort of the final thing that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, particularly given the fact that your husband's work is seasonal and you've got this real kind of ebb and flow to to the stresses of, of his work um, and then also kind of you'll be balancing that out across both of you over the year, you know, in terms of the homeschooling and stuff, um, is the idea of tilting. So is that something that you have adopted? Like, do you find it a, does it make sense to you, the idea of tilting? Yes, it does. It definitely helps, like, me with the house, you know, and, like, the toys not being put away. Like, yeah. well, I am having a big work day today, so I'm not going to worry about cleaning up the toys at the end of the day. Like, some days are going to be dedicated to her, and other days are going to be dedicated to me. And, uh, you know, and that's important. Yeah. yeah. And like, taking that, whatever you tilt away, like, whatever is the why, you know, making sure that you're at least focusing. If I have to tilt into work, I want to make sure I'm going to tilt back into her when yeah. I need to. Exactly, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, kind of tying the first part of our conversation with this as well, you can tilt into a season maybe when work isn't quite so intense or when your daughter is on a break. You can tilt into making new changes to continue these low-waste efforts in your life then. You don't have to do it all at once and it doesn't have to be a constant, like a constant evolution. You know, it can happen in spurts. And you can do it over the summer when you may have a little more time, a little more headspace, a little more daylight, you know, um, and, and use that as an opportunity to adopt another three or four different low waste changes. And then for the rest of the year, when things are busier elsewhere, just live with them, you know, until the next summer or the next sort of period of downtime comes around and you realize, oh, this is my new normal. And I think that's a really sustainable way of making these low waste changes part of your life without feeling like it's a constant um, you know, battle to to continue to improve every week on week. Um, you know, I think that you can sort of take the idea of tilting down to a very micro level, like day to day, but also seasonal. You can look at this as a season of of tilting into making changes, and then the next couple of months is a season of tilting into getting used to the new rhythm of of homeschool and you know both of you working and both of you being involved in in those ways. I mean, even mapping out your to the point where you map out your year, I know you said structure really helps. You could potentially look at your year and see where those sort of slower times might be and then research what change you might want to make at that time so you can be prepared. Is that something that would would kind of appeal? Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole idea of just, okay, her birthday is coming up. And so taking some time to declutter before her birthday comes around yeah. and we have to deal with some new toys. And like, yeah, definitely there was a time where, okay, I bought a bunch of reusables. And so I'm getting used to using these reusables and not using the plastic. And so then, yes, you can take a step back after setting these like setting up systems right I exactly. feel like this whole compost thing like right now I don't feel like I have a system in place and so that's why I'm struggling with it because I'm just having overflowing bales of food scraps and so I just need to set something up and that way I cannot put so much thought into it all the time yeah. you know what I mean yeah okay I feel like maybe that's we've just sort of unlocked the the key here is this idea of systems you know and doing the planning putting that that head work in once and then it seems like you're someone who once those systems are in place you're good like as, as long as you know what's in place you're happy for that to unfold every day or every week or every month um so maybe that that is some that sort of a lens through which you can view both of these areas of life what is one new system that I can put in place for low waste living and by system it could just be putting the reusable bags back in the car when you finish unpacking the groceries that's a system you know and you put that in place um, what's one system that I can put in place for managing working from home and it could be like the Sunday whip it could be taking yourself off to a coffee shop um, for two hours every week on a Tuesday morning and that's when you work on X, Y, and Z. It seems like if you've put that structure in place, like you said, your bandwidth will will not be as impacted 
as um, as maybe it is at the moment when you don't feel like you have systems. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's key. And I've been working on that this year as habits, like trying to make some habits. And yeah, like um, it's like making your bed in the morning, right? It just gives you that little bit of exactly it's a little win and it's also it just it's a foundation you know you lay those foundations for your day or for your week or for your month um and you you feel more stable once those are in place like brushing your teeth I mean I can't go to bed if I haven't brushed my teeth and that's what you're kind of looking for with those habits or systems it's just the way things operate for you not to say that it won't change as your daughter gets older and your work shifts but you know so I think that it's important to acknowledge that we evolve and our needs evolve but um, I think putting that that in place might might be really helpful for you. So I'd love for you, even I also I'd love to have a check in with you in a couple of months because um, first of all I'd love you to do the the, the meeting or some kind of whip um, or sit down with your husband once a week and see if that again blame me <laughs> and see if that sort of brings some structure to your week and brings allows that bandwidth to be freed up for other things but also maybe think about what system you might want to put in place for your low waste stuff if it is just putting in a in place a system with your compost um you know whether that is driving out to the property once a week or uh you know whatever is feasible for you or even just once the bale once the pail is full of scraps digging a hole in the garden and, and putting that in there for the time being um, and just sort of nominating one system to put in place and live with that for a couple of months and, and see if that has also helped you feel like you're taking that next step. Yeah, I'd like to do a little bit more though. And I'm okay. I don't think we really touched on it is my packaging problem. <laughs> and so yes. like, yeah, cereal boxes and granola bars. Like I don't, yeah, I don't buy in bulk. And so I have a daughter who loves mac and cheese. Yep. She likes cereal and she likes granola bars. And those all have packaging that fill my trash can. And they do. I don't know what to do about it besides not buy and that's not an option. Right, so, exactly. And then, I mean, I think the immediate option that we often think of is, well, I should be making my own. And that's yeah. time, right, that that you don't have. When you're running a business, your partner's running a business, you've got your daughter at home full time, that's not feasible. So there was, I did actually have a suggestion, um, and I didn't want to sound like I was overwhelming you. But um, I'm curious to know if you have anyone in, take a bit of research, but anyone in your kind of local area who has similar desires to reduce waste and see if you can't create some kind of casual co-op with them where each month one of you takes on the responsibility of shopping in bulk. So just for your dry goods and um, whether or not it's possible to buy cereal in bulk, I have no idea. It will definitely require a system and the chances are that you'll probably be the person driving it, at least in the beginning. So that might feel like too much. It's part of the reason I didn't, I didn't raise it. But um, it could be worth exploring. Do you, do you have people um, nearby who you think might be interested? My sister, okay. actually. Um, it's funny because, like, I just happened when I first started and went out on my own and was explaining the circular economy concept and she – she was like, yeah, I've been trying, you know, we recycle. And I'm like, I always like, okay, yeah, that my parents have always recycled. That's something that is just, like I said, we have the igloos up here that you sort your recycling. And and anyway, she was like, yeah, I recycle. But then it was like more because I was complaining about glass. There's no um, way. Somebody told me that glass is infinitely recyclable, but it's not available up here for some reason. Right. A lot. Um, and so she was saying how, you know, all of her kids drink out of the jelly jar, like all of their cups are glass jelly jars. And so, so yeah, us too, like we have all mason jars that are all drinking glasses, but I hate to buy a jar of spaghetti sauce now. And like, I don't know, I have to look at the plastic as recyclable, but I can't buy the spaghetti sauce in the glass jar because glass jars aren't recyclable. And my cupboard is full of glass jars. I mean, the issue with recycling is that it, it kind of it makes us feel good and it is a positive thing. It's much more positive than putting it in landfill for sure. Um, but plastics particularly can be really tricky to recycle, as I'm sure you know, um, and that they may be recycled once before the like the, the materials that make up the plastic are no longer strong enough to create a bottle or something like that. And then it's get, it gets turned into road base or 
melted down into to furniture and um that's fine but i think it kind of fuels this loop that it's okay i you know i'm recycling it so it's fine i'll just keep buying plastic and it's kind of it's it's upsetting and i can completely understand why you'd be frustrated that you can't recycle glass because glass is such a uh, you know, it's a much more sensible thing to have to recycle. So I wonder then if you could look at using, you know, your cupboard full of glass jars to store some of the, the dry goods that you could buy in bulk if you go into it with your sister perhaps because it sounds like she's on board um, to a certain extent. So, I mean, even just starting small by saying, okay, well, let's just order, um, you know, one sack of flour, one of oats, one of, um, you know, sugar and, and something else and just kind of start with that and and see how long it takes you guys to go through it and see what it feels like to to use some of those glass jars that you've got in storage for something other than just sitting there not being recycled um and and that could be kind of a, a win-win situation possibly um i'll do a little bit of of research and see if i can find some um some bulk dry goods providers in the states who will ship maybe even in paper and I'll send that through to you because I think that could be a good place to begin um, if it, you know, if it's appealing to you. And sorry to go on to another issue, but paper. I don't even have a place to recycle. Right. Can you use office waste in your compost? Um, you can read brown. I mean, I always put brown paper, shredded paper, um, shredded newspaper in our compost um, I'm not 100% sure about office paper. Um, I'll, I will look into that, though. It could be that the dyes or the inks yeah. um, are, are not great, um, in which case if you have a fireplace, you could use that as a fire starter, um, you know, dip some paper in paraffin wax or stuff like toilet rolls, you know, toilet tissue rolls with paper and paraffin wax and make your own fire starters, that sort of thing, like getting a little bit creative um, with the solutions to kind of reuse uh, instead of just kind of blindly recycling or or not if you can't. You can obviously use it as scrap paper for your daughter to draw on the back of and to write notes and things like that and at least reduce the amount that you're using before disposing of it. Let me have a think about some some other solutions as well. I think there is definitely more opportunity out there and just learning about it. And also just taking the time, you know, because life is full for you at the moment. So it's okay that it takes time and it's okay that you do them one at a time. Um, and it could be that some of those solutions just are not a realistic fit right now, but possibly there might be a couple that are. So, you know, kind of being flexible enough to meet yourself where you are. It might not be that hard. So, right. Yeah. And you don't know until you ask. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me, Amy, and for sharing so openly um, and for being so curious as well and, and open to all of this. It's It's been a really good conversation. I've learned a lot and I need to go and learn more about composting. So. I <laughs> <laughs> have fruit flies like coming out of my everywhere so <laughs> we will get your compost sorted i promise yeah. okay. okay so that was the lovely amy and you may i can relate yeah i think a lot of people can mm. relate i i heard a lot of myself actually in those frustrations mm. of, of reaching that point of making changes and then going ah like it's really tough now to, to go this next step. So I hope that the suggestions that Amy and I sort of talked out about not feeling like we need to forge all of these paths alone, you know, partnering maybe with a sister or with other people in the community, community. to see if there Community's was a way. Key. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you may also have heard that I made a complete composting ratio error. Oh. <laughs> so as soon as I got off the call with Amy, I looked it up and I emailed her. I'm like, we were both kind of right. We were both a little bit wrong. So right. the I just got the ratios flipped around. It's yeah. 30, the you know conventional wisdom for creating a compost heap is 30 to 1, 30 parts brown, like carbon. Organic matter? Yeah, yeah. No, no, but not not what? living stuff. So like oh. dry, dry leaves and oh, okay. dried up grass clippings and paper Hummus. and... No, just saying words. I'm just saying words that are, I know related to compost. <laughs> anyway, I never, ever have said that I'm a composting expert and I proved it. So, What's the ratio? 30, 30 parts 
of brown yeah, so to, what? to one part of green. So oh. that's food scraps and, and fresh cut garden material. Oh, wow. So we have yeah, probably wrong. had a 50-50 yeah. of, green to ground, of green to brown, which is probably why over um, winter it didn't break down as quickly as we wanted. It still breaks down, but it can get quite um, stinky. Stinky and And it sort of ferments wet. like the, um, the grass clippings. Yeah. You don't really want to put them in wet. You want to wait till they've dried out a bit and okay. that otherwise it gets really waterlogged. Okay. So anyway... I am not a composting expert and I am learning alongside everyone else. <laughs> Tell you who is, though, is my guest for the second half of the episode. Now, I'm, who is that? I'm chatting with Tammy Logan right. from Gippsland Unwrapped. And I originally got in touch with Erin Rhodes for this episode and she put me in touch with Tammy because Tammy specifically offers insights into um, living a low waste life, making changes towards low waste living from the perspective of someone who lives in a rural area. Yeah, it's great. So her town um, in Victoria has like 390 people and she's still someone who has adopted the low waste life mm. really successfully Yeah. over the past, I think she said 2015 was when she first started making changes. So she has some incredibly practical and helpful advice specifically for people who maybe don't have a bulk store nearby or who don't have the the budget to be able to buy some of these things in bulk or you know to make their own like budget in terms of time but also uh, money but also mm. in terms of time mm. and it's just a really practical conversation with the permission to not do everything perfectly totally. attached yeah and i think that that's a really important thing to take away from any of these conversations absolutely um, but we also talk about, you know, the importance of, yes, making individual changes, but also looking at, um, you know, advocating for change on a community level and why living in a small town is actually potentially easier to instigate change community-wide than it is in the suburbs or in the city because, it, you know, the community is typically quite connected and, you know, you can have a conversation and that can spark change really quickly. It can make holistic change quite happen quite efficiently and exactly. fast. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, show notes to this episode and for all those that appear in Season 4, head over to slowyourhome.com slash Season 4. To learn more about Tammy and the work that she does, mm -hmm. just head to her website, gippslandunwrapped.com. And you can find her under the same name, both on Facebook and Instagram. Really, really great communities to, to join and get inspired. Awesome. So uh, enjoy the second half of this episode. Tammy, hello. How are you? Hi, Brooke. I'm good, thanks. Now, so we've, we've heard from Amy and Amy wants to and already has made some huge strides in, in shifting the way that she's living towards more of a low waste kind of way. Uh, she's found herself now in this position where she wants to make better choices and is sort of finding herself a little hamstrung by the services that are available. Something interesting that's come up this season is this idea that so often with these changes, we as individuals take the responsibility and put it all on our shoulders. You know, that if we can't find a plastic free option for something that our kids eat, then we feel personally responsible but Sarah Wilson was on the show a couple of weeks ago and, and she really she made a point that there is a system in place and I don't necessarily think that we can operate external to that system all the time. What are your thoughts on that before we sort of get into the practicalities? Striving for as low waste as possible is not about me trying to be some sort of perfect individual. Mm. It does make me feel better, but the whole reason I do it is because I want to change the system. So I want... Um, to raise awareness about the impacts of um, these choices and these things that are out in the world and try and help people to choose better and use their consumer power to, to change the system so that the people who are putting this stuff out into the world are responsible for what happens to it in its end of life. Exactly. And I think for me anyway, that's been the missing part of the conversation for the longest time that we... Um, as individuals banding together can start to shift the system, not by uh, necessarily our individual choices, but by yep. pushing back. Yes, and I exactly. think that's really empowering, um, particularly if you, if you find yourself in a situation where some of the go-to responses for living a lower waste life aren't available to you in a, in a small town. Has that affected the way that you go about 
um, making changes? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've seen the results of my pushback towards businesses. So one of the great things about living in small communities, um, you tend to know a lot of the people who own the small businesses and stuff as well. Mm. Um, But because they're small enough and they really um, need to take notice of their customer base, we can make change happen quite quickly. So um, the more people that speak up, they're going to say, oh, actually, this is what my customers want. And so when I realised that there wasn't a lot of um, package-free or plastic-free options for me, every store that I went into, I told the staff what I was looking for and why, and we ended up having conversations about that sort of thing, and they would be like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. I kind of feel that way as well. And I just started talking more in general, so talking to all the people around me and then encouraging them to go into the stores and talk as well. And so I've really seen in the small communities around me that change happening. So we now got more um, package-free options over the last five years and more reusable, recyclable, compostable packaging where packaging is not um, avoidable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really make a big difference and um, and through talking as well I actually discovered that a lot of the small businesses do the packaging themselves so they can quickly change things and an example of that is I was in my grocer one day and I said you know what I haven't eaten peas for a really long time because I'm trying to avoid the plastic and can't grow them myself and um, and she said well, we package them out the back ourselves. So maybe I can just put a tray out the front of all these peas, but you'd have to shell them yourself. And I said, I would love that if you could do that. And so she did, and it stayed that way. And so obviously more people were interested in doing that sort of thing too. So by, by speaking up and talking to people, make change happen quite quickly. Maybe that's something, again, that we can we can harness. Or maybe all it takes is just that kind of initial bravery of, of having the conversation I feel like sometimes we don't want to be uh, that person, you know, but what you've discovered and what I've discovered over the years is that if you have a, a like a gentle, frank conversation about why and you make it about yourself, uh, I often sort of use the, the line, I'm doing an experiment uh, to see how much plastic I can reduce or something like that. And that sort of softens it and it doesn't feel, uh, people don't tend to feel like I'm being judgmental. Um, do you have any tips for how to begin that conversation in your community, particularly if people are feeling nervous? As you said, making it about yourself is a really great way to start it because then they're not feeling defensive about you mm-hmm. saying you need to change this or this is a problem you're creating. Um, smile and, um, yeah, have a gentle conversation. It really works much better. And I think that you're right that being in a small community means that I hadn't really sort of put those two things together, but it means that the change can be can be brought about more rapidly and also the conversation can spread maybe more readily. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, I think that would be true. So how it all started for me is um, I had a presentation at my work about the impacts of plastic in waterways and we saw the videos of the seabirds being cut open and so that was really, uh, and the plastic coming out of their stomachs. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a bit of a, life-changing thing for me and I thought I'm going to do something about this and um, I looked around and discovered Plastic Free July and started doing that and started sharing that through my personal Facebook profile and I thought you know we live I live in a very conservative area and I thought people would not be interested in this they'd I'd just be the typical greeny loony kind of thing (laughs) Um, and and I just discovered that uh, just through people knowing me um, they got really interested and were following along and then They'd leave me comments saying, I was at the supermarket today and I thought to myself, what would Tammy do in this situation? <laughs> you know, I had other people leaving comments on my Facebook posts saying, oh, I found bulk nuts at the market today and you can get them from this guy and stuff. So people just started getting really involved and then started thinking about the changes they could make in their lives. Um, and, yeah, and when I saw that that was happening, that's when I – started up Gippsland Down Wrap to make it more visible and spread the message further. And, and I see it with um, friends of my friends now. You know, it really does flow out that way through the community. It's the ripple effect. Even though I know it happens, I'm still always so moved by that momentum that comes from just a handful of people who care. And you, you recognise it really quickly that even if someone isn't so vocal about it, there are so many people who care, you know. And I think that's a, a really important thing to to recognise. 
it really does make a difference to know that there are other like-minded people around and that that can lead to collaboration, um, you know, and, and from there, the I guess the, the reach multiplies by tenfold because then everyone's got friends and family who they can influence and it's, it's phenomenal to me. Um, speaking of collaboration, I mentioned to Amy um, because she didn't really have any sort of bulk options perhaps that she would band together with her sister and some people from her community to do a larger sort of bulk food shop online. Do you have any experience with doing anything like that and perhaps any insight or tips into maybe how to structure it? I've watched others trying to get by, but I've actually found that in rural areas, these really struggle to survive. And I think it's um, distance and time and and low numbers of people interested, low income and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's there's a couple that, that they can work really great and, yeah, in an informal way that would work really well as well, but they tend to sort of just kind of fall away and I think that's because of the systems we're operating in quite an individualistic society and we're all trying to work and trying to do this full run and all these sorts mm-hmm. of things. What ended up working really well for me is bringing the bulk to me. So instead of trying to find the, the bulk stores, um, and taking my one-litre glass bottle to be refilled with oil over and over and over again, I just bought the 20-litre drum of locally produced olive oil and, and brought it to my home. So that you can do that with pantry staples, but it does require you have somewhere to store that kind of thing um, over time. But we need to remember that bulk stores still do have packaging. Yes. We just don't see it. Yeah, I've just brought it home for me to deal with. So it's a 20 litre steel drum that I will make sure goes to steel recycling. Or you might have a five litre plastic container of dishwashing detergent or something like that. That makes so much sense. And I think it's actually perhaps even a more realistic view of the system. Because if you walk into a bulk food store, which is great if you're able to, it's um, you walk away often with very little packaging, but that doesn't mean that the packaging doesn't exist. So I think yeah. that it can be perhaps a little easier to ignore that part of the system when you're not seeing it individually. Um, Whereas if you're bringing in one five litre container or one 20 litre drum, you, you, I mean, you understand that there is still packaging involved and it's about a minimizing it, b reusing it if you can and c disposing of it in the best possible way. And I guess another thing that just popped into my mind about um, being in a rural area is often we have the ability to go straight to the farm gate for some things as well. Yes, which is really cool. I love I love shopping at like little farm stalls and I live in a, it's definitely not rural, but um, like a country area and there's lots of small holdings and farms around and just driving by and picking up a pumpkin here and, you know, if you're on the way to pick the kids up from school, you go and pop this in. And um, the other thing though that the community that I have moved into Uh, does a lot is crop swap and, you know, produce sharing among community members, people who grow their own food or bake their own bread or they've got chickens, uh, which is I'm only just beginning to kind of dip my toe into. It allows you to to reduce this idea that we have to be completely self-sustainable, first of all, and that community is really important um, in in creating maybe a a sustainable community. But also uh, you you get to meet people and I think that you get to meet like-minded people. Do you, have you had any sort of experience with sort of system like that? I do. I actually started one in 2010, um, the Puong Produce Swap. <laughs> so Puong is the town that I, I live in. Um, so yeah, we started that and it ran for about four years. And that was because I was gardening and seeing all the, the excess stuff I had and thinking, what a waste if that all just goes into my compost. I decided to organise one, sent out flyers around the town and um, people would come together once a month. And, yeah, we swapped the produce, we swapped some homemade food. Um, but one of the really great things I got out of it was the, the gardening tips and the swapping of recipes. Um, and I also managed to get and learn about so many plants and food that grow in my local area that I'd never heard of before, actually. And we know it's right for our microclimate and it's going to do really well. And, yeah, it's like there's so many benefits. And it's that hyper-local um, information, isn't it? You know, you can read all the books and the blogs and stuff about how to grow your own. But sometimes if you're, if you're just a little bit out of that growing zone, it can, you really got to work to get anything usable from some of the plants. So that local knowledge is, um, uh, it's invaluable, I'm discovering. <laughs> you mentioned compost. Now, 
Amy was struggling a little bit with coming up with a system for her compost because she wasn't composting at home but was composting out on some some land um, that her family owned and couldn't sort of make a daily trip or anything like that. Do you have any specific tips on like, how to manage that situation or, or, you know, whether if you're bulk composting, perhaps how to store your food scraps until you get to the, the compost? So we have to remember with reducing waste to landfill – Uh, We've got a decision-making hierarchy which um, aims to maximise resources and minimise waste. And so the top there is prevention and minimisation, then reuse, recycling, composting, energy recovery and then disposal. So if we think about like her problem of having uh, a really full compost bin, Mm. what can we do to to minimise the amount going into it? I was sort of wondering if it's also including lots of garden waste, so lawn clippings and leaves and prunings, because that stuff doesn't have to go in there. We can actually just use it as mulch on garden beds. Um, So I wasn't entirely sure if she had her own garden um, to make use of, but, you know, in case it's suitable for other people, you can use that as mulch on garden beds. You can run over this kind of stuff with a lawnmower to chop it up really small and it will break down really quickly, just sort of spread over the lawn. Um, yeah, so that stuff doesn't have to be in there. But if the, the compost bin is already actually just full of food waste, then we need to think about how to minimise the amount of food waste going in there. So that can involve things like shopping from your pantry or fridge first, um, doing some meal planning and creating a shopping list for that and sticking to that list and then storing food correctly so it doesn't go off um, so quickly making sure you eat leftovers, just really concentrating on using up what you have already. Mm. So if you can't really do much about that, then thinking about, well, what other kind of composting options are there? And I really liked your dig and drop composting. That's one I like to do. Um, And sharing with others as well who can perhaps take the waste for their own compost or even for their own chickens. Yes. And so maybe having your own chickens is something that she might want to look at or even just adding a worm farm um, to the situation. But I came across um, this really cool composter when I started working at my new workplace a couple of months ago, Green Cone Composter. You just put it out in the sun and it's designed so that the sun heats the thing up. Um, so increased temperatures, increased airflow, increases the microbial activity. And it's just kind of like a big digester, like a bakashi bucket. Right. Um, so you literally walk up to it, open the lid, put your food in there, close the lid and walk away. You never have to turn it. You don't have to worry about pests or anything. And it um, breaks down more food waste in a week than the average household produces. Wow. So this is actually not a good composter to use if you want compost for your garden. But, you know, there's so many people that say to me, well, I don't have a garden and I'm just, you know, I'm not interested in that aspect of it. I just want to stop the waste from going to landfill. So this is a great product for that. You literally just bury it in part way and and let it do its thing. You don't have to move it for five years either. So there's options out there. You've just got to work out what is out there and match it. I mean, that sounds like a a really great option, as you say, for people who maybe aren't gardeners, they don't really have the the space or the capacity or the, the desire to create compost, but also are aware that food waste going into landfill is disastrous, you know. So I think that's yep. that's brilliant. Uh, but I also really like your point of maybe doing an audit of what is going into the compost and see at what points you could perhaps minimise that, you know, or even sort of get more out of it before it goes into compost, so even things like making your own stock and um, yep. and that kind of thing. I have a question, actually. Um, it's not related to my conversation with Amy, but I've always been curious do you have any tips on what to do with bones, um, even if you make a bone broth or a stock from them? And then what's the next step in terms of composting? If you do make a bone broth, um, then the bones are really crumbly and can easily go in compost. So I'm not afraid of putting any of this stuff in just a normal compost bin. Um, it will eventually break down. But the reason that um, it's recommended that you don't know it is because it might attract pests. Yes. So it depends on if you have a pest-proof composting system. Or you can do the dig and drop, just dig a hole and bury it yeah, 30 centimetres down. Um, if you don't have dogs that will dig it back up or anything. <laughs> Another option that we've had is we've got a fireplace. So we can just put the bones in the fire and then when it's all broken down into ash later on, then it can just be sprinkled back on the garden. So 
yeah, so there's there's ways of getting around it. So just digging it straight into the ground. Um, something like the green cone composter that also takes bones and all of those things that you get told not to put in your compost okay. usually. Don't. Thank you. I've always been very curious. Um, I don't eat meat. I don't eat meat, but my husband does. He loves smoking meat, so um, he's often got ribs and things like that. Uh, and I've always been curious about. Uh, I knew why the the you know conventional wisdom is to not put them in a regular compost heap, and I understood that. But it always just seemed like a monumental waste. Um, yeah. So the fire thing is really interesting. I had not um, come across that. So thank you. Yeah. So like a fireplace, because um, many homes around where I am, because it is a bit colder, are heated by wood fires. Um, and so that's that's the part of the energy recovery part of the waste hierarchy. So before it gets to landfill, then you might be able to recover some of the energy. So if you're burning things anyway for heat, then popping things like bones or other bits and pieces um, that might not be easily compostable or recyclable, um, they could go in your fireplace. And, you know, as long as you're not chucking plastic and stuff in there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> Amy also asked me about... Uh, we, we exchanged emails quite a few times after uh, we after we recorded and she was curious about a couple of specific areas that she's been struggling with a bit um, and they were low-waste snacks for kids um, as well as low-waste options for, uh, you know, laundry detergent and dishwashing liquid and things like that, particularly mm-hmm. if she's someone who doesn't have time to make everything from scratch like lots of us, you know, are. Yep. So do you have any tips on any of those, um, you know, suggestions for places to start? Yeah, so I'll go with the sort of cleaning products first. My go-to is bars of soap because they are easily accessible everywhere and they do a really good job cleaning things. So I'll use a bar of soap to wash the dishes. Um, So hot soapy water is pretty much what I use to clean everything around Mm -hmm. the house, Um, that and vinegar. Um, So laundry detergents. Um, I, there is a couple of places like a health food store where I can go and get mine in my own bag um, or there are some brands in the supermarket that just come in a, a box with no plastic wrapping or plastic scoops and she could do that as well and then you could compost the box because I believe she said that paper recycling and maybe cardboard recycling are not really options around her. That's right. So you could, you could compost in that situation. Um, with the snacks, that is one that I find difficult so food is the most difficult thing I find like everything else to do with personal grooming and cleaning and all the other things I find pretty easy to find solutions for but package-free food or low-waste snacks are quite difficult so it becomes really kind of basic stuff like boiled eggs and there are a lot of places where you can get dried fruit and nuts and vegetable sticks and that sort of thing so nothing I don't I haven't come up with anything really inspiring but that's also because I think Cooking and baking and all of that is not really um, something I'm in love with doing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think anyone who does enjoy cooking and baking, they would have lots of ideas for this sort of thing. So, oh, popcorn's a good one. Um, But, again, I've been able to get that from a bulk store. So it becomes about, well, you just got to do what you can do and and kind of move on after that, I think. Exactly, kind of releasing that that stick that we so often wield to, you know, beat ourselves up with. Popcorn, for example, if you can find, you know, a a large, maybe a one kilo bag of kernels in your supermarket, that's going to make you a lot more um, popcorn snacks for your kids than if you buy them individually, like wrapped in, you know. So that's sort of one bag versus 40. Um, And that's sort of one of, like, I guess what you were talking about at the beginning, making the better choice may not be the perfect choice, but it's the better choice. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> no, <that's all> right. <laughs> um, so I actually just wanted to, before we wrap up, sort of swing around to the second part of my conversation with Amy where we spoke about the eternal juggle to balance or, you know, otherwise life between parenting and working and making different choices for the environment and um how how we make that work in on any given day for for me it's about understanding what's important in terms of our priorities understanding our values and um, creating an opportunity maybe to to live in alignment with those but that ultimately means that I 
let other things go in in terms of the way yeah. that I live. What's your experience with that that idea of either balance or, or you know or tilting into whatever it is that you're doing in the moment, be it work or parenting or, or, or anything else? There are times in our lives where it's easier to tilt into something than at other times. And when I look back, so I'm someone who's always been interested in environmental issues. And when I look back over time, there's definitely been times in my life where it's been easier and I've been more motivated to do certain things. So like prior to kids and then when I had little kids, things really, you know, priorities became about stuff other than environmental issues um, and then as things got a bit easier with them, then this is where Gippsland Unwrapped came about and I've been really focused on that again. But then um, in 2018, I uh, very quickly developed rheumatoid arthritis, which had me bed bound for a while. And so at that point in time, I had to, you know, I was struggling to put on clothes and to go to the toilet because I was in so much pain. So mm. obviously going around to all the different shops, um, to get package-free things was not a priority anymore. So life really changed at that point. And I felt for a little while like I was letting people down um, by not being able to continue being plastic-free completely kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then realised, yeah, I just have to be kind to myself. Doing the best in this moment puts you in the best place for the next moment. Over the years, if I hadn't have continued to just do the best I could do in the moment, then I wouldn't have been able to do as well as I'd done at other points in my life further along, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And that's such a a beautiful way of putting it. You know, you release a lot of expectations and pressure when you say it that way. You just do the best that you can in this moment, and that will set you up to do the best you can in future moments. And I think that's A, self-compassionate, and B, sustainable. (laughs) You know, yep. both of which are really important if we're wanting to can, like make long-term changes in our own homes but also in our community. Who is that? Hi, Papa.